Dear Father, we thank you, Father, for the many requests we receive when we open up for prayer every Wednesday night. Father, you say when two or more gathered, you're with us, and you remind us that that is how the church is to behave and how, how we are to work together, that we are to work as a team, coming together, Father, in the Spirit, and then serving one another. And prayer is one of those ways in which, as a body, we come to minister to and for one another. And I'm thankful, Father, that we don't rush past that or skip over it in this study. We have a chance, Father, to exercise that right, that opportunity that you've given us. And I do pray, Father, that we would see the results of these prayers manifested in the stories we'll hear in the weeks to come of uh, individuals who were restored in health or who were um, comforted in a time of loss or whose circumstances, Father, were beyond their control. And you stepped in as you do so often and you made all things turn to good. We look forward, Father, to those testimonies as continuing evidence of your faithfulness. But, Father, we know even if we don't hear these things, that you are at work. As you taught your prophet Elijah, that though the world may look for earthquakes and great signs of fire, you are often found in the gentle breezes of our life. And, Lord, we know that that is how you are often working, and including in tonight's study, even in the words of one man who is fallible and and often, Father, uh, working in weakness. But you can take these things and magnify them and bring them to good purpose in the lives of those who hear and in all things bring yourself glory. We ask for that outcome tonight as we study in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 14, Jesus declared he was leaving for a time. You remember that gave us an opportunity to delve into the nature of the rapture as we saw it introduced in the first part of the chapter. He began that conversation so that he could explain to the disciples why they weren't going to be able to follow him, why they were going to be left behind for a time. And as you remember, the disciples did not possess the wherewithal to understand what Jesus was talking about in the moment. So they began to ask questions. They asked the wrong questions for the most part. They wanted to know more about his circumstances. They wanted to know where he was going. They wanted to know why he was leaving. But instead, what they should have been asking as they came into this moment in the upper room was how are we going to serve as your representatives in your absence? In other words, instead of being focused on what was happening to him, they'd have been much better off to be focused on what it meant for them that they were going to be alone. They should have been asking questions like, how will we know what to do? Or how do we advance the program of the kingdom without your power and teaching to help us get an audience or to make an impression and so on? Well, fortunately, Jesus recognized that they needed to know these things, even though they didn't know enough to ask them. So while they continue to recline around the table in the upper room, Jesus begins to explain how they're going to perform their responsibilities as his representatives without his physical presence in the world after he's departed the world. We saw a little of that last week. His very first words were to encourage them. He says, I will return for you. And that's, again, what left us with the conversation about the rapture. Then he said, so believe in Christ, believe in my words. Remember, I speak for the father in all that I teach. And now from that, Jesus explains to the disciples how they're going to have access to his wisdom and to his power, how they're going to remember what he's taught them, how they're going to get an audience in this world, how they're going to serve him. That's the remainder of the chapter. We'll begin in chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do. He will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus begins with the counsel 
for how they will work in his absence by saying they will do the same works that he did. And in fact, they will do, quote, greater works than Jesus did. And they will do so because he goes to the father. He says first works his reference to works. What it means, broadly speaking, is all the meaningful accomplishments of his ministry. So first it would refer to his teaching. His teaching and the message he delivered. Jesus, you remember, came declaring the message of the gospel, the opportunity to enter the kingdom. So therefore, now the apostles will do those same works. They will do exactly the same thing, although now in Jesus's absence, they will become the first ambassadors of the church, declaring to the world Jesus is Messiah. And as they do so, Jesus says the disciples will experience greater success than he did. Jesus had a measure of success in his preaching of the gospel. But on the other hand, we know God purposed for his son to die, which by necessity, that means his message had to be rejected for the most part by those he came to reach. So by the same token, the father who purposed that Jesus's message would leave him on a cross has likewise purposed that the apostles would carry that message to a far greater impact. They would persuade many. And as we know from the book of Acts, They were able to impress large crowds, converting them by their preaching. You just have to think about Pentecost as an example. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't suggesting that they are more capable than he was. What he's saying is the father will use the church to spread the gospel much farther and to a greater extent than was possible in just three years of a ministry of a man who ultimately was intended to die on a cross because of his message. It's just the nature of things. So first, they will do what he did in terms of teaching and spreading the gospel, and they and disciples like them will do it to a far greater degree. Secondly, Jesus performed miraculous works, we know, and he did so to validate his message. He performed a lot of things we've already studied, things that are covered in the other gospels, raising dead bodies, feeding crowds, walking on water, etc. And Jesus says in verse 11, his works were the convincing proof that he and the father were one. No ordinary human does such things unless he is working as God. Jesus promised the disciples here that they will perform these same miracles in their own ministries. And again, the book of Acts is our record of the fulfillment of this promise. In fact, I would argue it's a partial record because though it records many things, I doubt it records everything. So these men must have been working for years in performing many of these same miracles. And just like with Jesus, their performance of signs and wonders validated their message just as it had done for Jesus earlier. In fact, these powers in and of themselves, were proof that these men held the office of apostle. The gifting of apostle included these supernatural powers, raising men from the dead. You may remember from Acts, Peter's casting of his shadow, leading men to be healed. Right? There's these things you just don't see in the body of Christ as a regular routine, but they were evidently a part of what it meant to be an apostle. And therefore, like the teaching These men would perform greater miracles than Jesus did, not in the sense that they had more natural ability or that they were in any way a more effective miracle worker, but he means in the sense of frequency and effect. There will be more of them doing it for longer periods of time in front of more people and to greater effect growing the church. And of course, in terms of effect, we know that Jesus's miracles largely entertained large crowds of unbelievers within which maybe some came to faith. But in the case of the apostles, they're going to see large numbers of converts coming out of their work. Jesus adds at the very end that their works will be greater because Jesus goes to the Father. Remember, Jesus being incarnate could only operate in one place at one time on earth. 
So his departure opened an opportunity. By necessity, Jesus leaving the work that he had on earth, leaving the disciples, necessitated the sending of the Spirit, who could then accompany the church in his place. Obviously, the Spirit is unconstrained by flesh, so he can work within every believer simultaneously. And that's why Jesus says his departure brings opportunity for even greater work to be done on the earth in his absence. Because when he left, the spirit could take his place, at least for a time. But by nature of spirit versus flesh, the spirit could be that much more effective. They're all God. We're not saying that there's some hierarchy here in that respect. What we're saying, though, is by the nature of how Christ was incarnate, he put himself in a form that had limits, as Paul says. Now, at this point, you and I should be asking, to what extent... Is Jesus's promise applicable to us today? Will we do greater works? Should we expect every believer, for example, to perform supernatural miracles equal to or greater than the ones Jesus performed? Is is that the expectation he had for us as he spoke these words? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, we can expect to share in these things to a degree. But no, we cannot assume that the specific gifts and opportunities that were assigned to the apostles will be common to all believers. In general, you have to guard against confusing descriptive things in Scripture from prescriptive things in Scripture. Most Scripture is descriptive in the sense that it describes people and events. And those descriptions are useful to us as teaching about God and about ourselves and about the interaction between men and God. But those descriptions of a people and events do not become prescriptive for every individual. For example, in the Old Testament, the Lord issued promises to King David concerning his, David's, future opportunity to rule within Israel in the coming kingdom. The Bible describes those promises as having been spoken specifically to David, and therefore it would be wrong if we read those as promises prescribed to all men in Israel. I mean, clearly, Not all men in Israel will reign on the throne over Israel. Just the one to whom those things were spoken to. And yet, at the same time, David shares many things with all faithful Jews, including the opportunity for life in the kingdom. So there were shared expectations for Jews because God prescribed them for all Jews. And then on top of that, there were individual expectations that God prescribed to certain individuals when he chose to. So we can see that God can make specific promises to individuals while at the same time making promises to larger groups. So while all Christians will share in the Holy Spirit and in the word of God, not all Christians are called to be apostles and therefore not all Christians will share in their supernatural powers. Here you see John describing what Jesus spoke, but you have to keep in mind the circumstances in which these things were said. We're in a small room with only 11 people listening to him, and he's speaking directly to them. Jesus' words included, amongst the things he said, experiences that will be common to all believers, but they also included these unique promises intended only for these men. And so we share in some aspects of what he said, but that doesn't mean we are intended to share in all aspects of what is being said here. And how do we know the difference? Well, the context of Scripture, the history of the church, and our own experiences in the faith, all help us separate the prescriptive from the descriptive. After the last apostle died, for example, the power of miracles that were shared amongst this group of men ceased in the body of Christ. 
The apostolic gift had served its purpose in bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. Once the word of God was available through the writings of these same men, the need for signs and wonders to drive the church forward was no longer a part of God's purpose. In the place of those signs and wonders was the eternal word of God, which alone testifies to the truth of Christ without need for signs and wonders. The absence of apostolic power since the first century is further confirmation for us that Jesus was commissioning these men in unique ways for this moment in history and not as a perpetual part of church history. There is no record, no authenticated, trustworthy record of anyone in the church consistently having such powers after the first century. And I don't mean on the occasional basis of someone who God is empowered to do something miraculous here or there. We're talking about as an office in the form that these apostles held. False teachers, on the other hand, have tried and, of course, are still trying to convince believers that they can possess such powers or that these teachers possess them. But in all cases, it's easy to show that they are frauds if they cannot demonstrate their power except under very carefully orchestrated spectacles or in friendly confines under circumstances that are contrived for that very purpose. You notice the apostles could perform these miracles when necessary under the worst of circumstances in the midst of persecution as a means of escape when it was absolutely necessary. And they never did it as part of some show. Now, having said all this, this does not mean that God is never at work performing miracles today, including some of the sort that you see the apostles performing. Let's be clear. God is always free to accomplish the supernatural. And on occasion, he may still do so today. And none of us have enough understanding of all the events on earth at any given moment to be 100 percent certain that he's not at work doing it somewhere. Nevertheless, we can't turn to John 14 as proof that we should somehow expect to see those things in the lives of every believer. Nor are these abilities universally available within the body because simply a handful of men at some earlier time in the church were granted them for specific reasons. Again, that would be taking something descriptive and making it prescriptive. So to summarize, Jesus has spoken to these men about specific powers that they will have in performing works similar to Jesus's works as a part of their office as apostle. Moving ahead, Jesus' next promise has to be understood from a very similar perspective, because the next thing he adds is that whatever these men ask in his name, he will do so so that the father will be glorified. Let's begin with the phrase in my name. It's a very specific concept in ancient Israel and in the East to say that you were acting in the name of someone meant to act with the full consent and legal authority for that person's benefit, according to their direction and desires. We have a very similar legal standing today called a power of attorney, a power of attorney. This is essentially a power of attorney that Jesus is saying here. It doesn't mean compelling someone else to perform according to our desires by invoking their name. It means to carry out another person's desires on their behalf. I'm to do what you want, not what I want with that power of attorney. To act on your behalf to your best interest according to your wishes and your desires and your instructions. It doesn't give me carte blanche to pretend I'm you and do whatever I want in your place. Not if I'm doing it in good faith. That's what Jesus is expressing. When he says to the apostles, you are to ask in my name. He is saying specifically, they have his legal authority to act according to his desires while he's gone in his absence. He's issuing a power of attorney to the apostles. You see this truth again reflected in the book of Acts. The apostles were the authority of the church in those early years. You remember the moment in Acts 
with Ananias and Sapphira, where Peter is able to simply speak to them, acknowledging and revealing their sin, and they fall dead. That is clear evidence of their authority. In fact, the result, as you probably know from the story, is that there is great fear in the church. It's a respectful form of fear, an acknowledgement that these men truly are the representatives of God in the church right now, and we must respect that authority. They acted in Jesus' place. Jesus says, you do this, you say this, you pray like this, because I go to the Father. In other words, this whole chapter is predicated on where it began. I'm not going to be here. Things are going to be different. We have to put some things in place to accommodate the fact that you're working without me for a while. One of those things is my absence will require that I empower you to act on my behalf in very specific ways, like a power of attorney given to someone when you know you're not going to be available personally. Now, obviously, for Jesus to keep his promise to deliver on the apostles requests, they're going to have to make requests that are according to his desires. The apostles couldn't ask Jesus for just whatever might pop into their heads, whatever they imagined or wanted, and then expect Jesus to respond like a genie in a bottle because those kinds of requests would not be, quote, in his name. And therefore, they would not have gained Jesus's agreement. Once again, it's worth noting that false teachers are commonly promoting this sort of idea that you can pull Jesus's strings like a puppet and get what you want. That's a clear misuse of this teaching out of John 14. That's not what Jesus intended. And in fact, if you want proof, you don't even have to wait till you leave the room. Ask Jesus right now for something and see what happens. In the name of Jesus, I want a Bentley. (laughs) Right? I mean, we're laughing because we know the pure absurdity of that statement, right? And yet, if I take these words on their face without an understanding of what they really mean, that's where I'm led. I'm led to thinking that the words somehow make it happen. You cannot satisfy Jesus' expectations merely by adding the phrase, in the name of Jesus, at the end of your prayers. It's not wrong, by the way, to end our prayer in that way, so long as it reflects our understanding that by the intercession of Christ, we know the Father hears our prayers. If that's what you mean when you say, in the name of Jesus, in other words, in acknowledgement that through him this prayer is heard, then that is a perfectly suitable way to end your prayer. But if you're using that phrase like magic words to compel the Lord, as it were, to act according to your desire, then you might as well drop the phrase altogether because you're doing nothing except embarrassing yourself with that kind of thinking. Those phrases, these words, they do not substitute for making requests according to the will of God, which is what the phrase in his name requires. There's no magic prayer formula. Even in Matthew, where Jesus gives us the the Our Father, it's not meant as a, a verbatim form of prayer. It's meant as a model for prayer, which is to say the elements, the topics, the thoughts, are meant to be representative of what good prayer should incorporate. Acknowledgement of God's holiness and and power, thanks to him for all he does, petitions and supplications and forward-looking expectations. I mean, there's a model there, but it's not the magic words again. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to condemn those who think they will be heard for their, quote, many words. So how did the apostles discern the will of Christ, so as to ensure that when they asked, they were in his will, in his name. How would they have known that? Well, the answer is they relied on the inspiration of the Spirit to reveal the will of God. By operating in the Spirit, they could make requests that Jesus wanted them to make and which he then intended to grant. And although we all have equal access to the Spirit, it is, I think, evident just in looking at the book of Acts that the gifting of apostleship brought with it 
a greater abiding in the spirit. God chose to work with them in ways that supersede the average or typical experience so that he could move their hearts and he could direct their thinking even as they prayed and so that they would always be making the request that needed to be made to receive his approval. I mean, you see evidence of the opposite at times in Acts, where Paul wanted to go one place and God says, nope, can't go there, go another place. The mere fact that God changed his direction is simply proof of this once more, that they're in his will, that they're closely associated with his will. Jesus worked through these men as if he was still personally on the earth, which is the whole point of what Jesus is teaching. He wanted to encourage them to act boldly. Remember, they were going to encounter great challenges in their ministry. And on many occasions, the only way they were going to escape these predicaments and to turn the table on their enemies was by making public appeals of Christ to intervene in that moment. And those requests had to be made in the spirit and they had to be made under the authority Christ gave them if he was going to answer. So that when they were and when he responded and fulfilled his promise, these men would be publicly vindicated. Knowing that he was prepared to do this when he told them, do it in my name and I will do it gave them the boldness to step into moments where you and I might otherwise have said, well, that's a big risk. I don't want to take that risk. Jesus said, take the risks. When it's in my will, I'll be there with you. So we understand that Jesus did not issue this promise to imply that the apostles could operate as if they were God. Rather, he is promising them the mind and power of God in his absence. Notice in verse 14, Jesus reiterates, if you ask anything in my name, you will receive it. So, friends, the key to understanding this is that when you operate outside the will of God, you should expect nothing from Christ. On the other hand, when you operate in the will of Christ, you can do anything. Now, on to Jesus' next reassurance. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. In verse 15, Jesus establishes another basic precondition for serving him as his representative. He says, if they love him, they will keep his commandments. Now, commandments here simply refers to all the instructions Jesus delivered in all the years of ministry that he's been with these men. And then it would also include all the revelation that follows through them as they author scripture by the inspiration of the spirit. And then it also would include all the truth that had been revealed before them through the prophets in the word of God. So, in other words, if you love Jesus, you live according to his word. That's what he's saying. This sentence is written in the third class Greek which is the neutral class of the Greek language. We don't have this construct in English. That means that this statement makes no assumption about whether the person will or will not obey. It's an open question, in other words. So he isn't questioning whether these men feel love for him or not. I'm sure he knew that these men loved him. The point is that love is not a noun. Love is a verb. That's the point. You love Christ by obeying him. And conversely, you are not loving him when you disobey him. That's the purpose of what he's saying here. It would be literally impossible for someone, even a Christian, to say you love Christ while at the same time living in disobedience to his commands. Because the form of love that he's speaking about here is one of acting in keeping with love. It's not a question of what you feel about Christ. You may feel love for him, but Jesus doesn't perceive you as loving him. That's the issue. So if loving Jesus is the result of keeping his commandments, then this statement begs two big questions. First, how are the apostles to know all his commandments? 
I like to think that Jesus spoke these words in the upper room and he says, if you love me, you'll keep all my commandments. At that point, Peter sort of leans across the table to John and whispers, I know I should have written more down. I mean, they must have wondered how they were going to remember all the things Jesus has spoken over those three years and keep them all. That's a tremendous amount of stuff. John says at the end of this gospel that you wouldn't have enough books in the world to write down everything that Jesus did in his life on earth. So they knew they were going to need some help recalling all these things. And then the second question it begs is, even if you could remember everything, how can anyone have enough discipline and self-control to actually live according to all of those things? Even those of us who have the best of intentions are going to fall short daily for the most part. And knowing the flesh is weak and, and the enemy is strong, how can anyone say they love Christ, given this definition, if we all disobey him from time to time? Where does that leave us? We need help not only to know his commands, but to obey his commands. Well, anticipating this, of course, Jesus promises the solution. He says he will ask of the Father, and that Father will send the Helper to each of his children. And Jesus clarifies in verse 17, that Helper, of course, is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The term in Greek for helper is parakletos. Parakletos has a very specific meaning in Greek in the language. Some English Bibles translate the word counselor. Your Bible may say, I will send a counselor. That's actually the accurate word so long as you're using it in the legal sense. Because the Greek word means a legal advocate or legal assistant, someone who assists us in a court proceeding. In my English Bible, the word is helper, and that name fits well enough given the context of what Jesus is talking about, right? A, a spirit who helps us know and helps us keep the commandments of Christ. Notice that this statement is also a clear evidence of the Trinity. Notice how it started, Jesus saying he and the Father were one. Now we see him saying, I talked to the Father and I asked the Father to send you the Spirit, and he speaks of the Spirit in the third person. This is a great verse, by the way, or a section of Scripture to show anyone who would dispute that the Trinity is a reality in Scripture. Here you have the Lord himself making clear reference to these other two actors, although our God, clearly from the context. Once again, we need to understand there is a distinction between the way this promise impacted the apostles and the way it's intended to be taken for the rest of the church. For the apostles, what Jesus is promising is a spirit who would bring to mind, to their minds, the full text of Scripture which now forms the New Testament. I mean, have you ever wondered how all these men could have recalled specifically so many details of events that happened during the time Jesus walked the earth? I mean, certainly at some point you've read these stories and stopped yourself and asked yourself, this is written decades later. How are they so certain about what was said and to whom it was said, right? Well, the answer is the helper. And this is the promise in which that is being given to them. The helper brought to mind what Christ wants them to remember. Later in this chapter, you're going to see Jesus actually state that more clearly. This, though, is a unique gifting. It's what enabled the church to distinguish between true scripture and any false counterfeit that may have come along. True scripture is always authored, at least New Testament scripture, by an apostle. That was one of the criteria, the main criteria, by which the men who assembled the canon made their distinctions between what was in and what was out. Could we validate, could we verify that the source of this writing came from a known apostle? If it could not be validated, it was not even considered as part of the canon. So we have this standard for what is and what is not scripture that has been formed on the very basis of this promise that only these men had this authority. And they, of course, backed up that authority by their signs and wonders. Having said that, though, obviously the helper is still at work today. We're not saying that the apostles were the only ones to receive the helper. Obviously, he is at work today in every believer, albeit in lesser ways than he worked in the apostles. First, the spirit isn't working in us to author new scripture, but 
He is working in us to explain the scripture that we already have. He is the teacher for all believers. In fact, without the Spirit's counsel, you can't understand the Bible. Even though the words on the page are written in your native tongue, perhaps, and even though you may be a very excellent reader, if you don't have the Holy Spirit teaching you, the text will be inaccessible. I can remember picking up the Bible as an unbelieving teenager, and I don't even know to this day why I did it one time, but next I do know my parents had a rule when I was growing up that you couldn't watch TV Monday through Thursday. You can only watch TV on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, which in hindsight was a great rule for me. But on a Tuesday or a Wednesday when you're sitting in your den, you had nothing to do, no Internet. What do you do? I had a wall full of books. I pulled the Bible down. I can distinctly remember this. And I tried reading it. I really did. It was utterly hopeless. I was a good reader, but it was impenetrable. And it didn't matter what book I picked. It was impenetrable. It required the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life in my late 20s before I was in a position to know the deep things of God. And therefore, our ability to know and understand the word of God is continuing evidence of Christ keeping this very promise in our own personal life as you study the scriptures. Furthermore, the spirit empowers us, as it did the apostles, to live up to those commands. As Paul says in Romans chapter seven, five and six, he says, for while we were in the flesh, meaning before we knew the Lord, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now... We've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we will serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. It's a fascinating principle of what it means to be in sin. It shows you that sin is a power of its own in the universe. It's not merely a description of what you do when you make a mistake. It's the description of a power that inhabits your body. Before the spirit came, Paul says, God's commandments accomplished the useful purpose of convicting and making you aware of your own sin. But that knowledge in and of itself does you no good because your flesh, by its very nature, takes the opportunity with that knowledge to arouse in you new ways to conflict with the law. The moment your flesh becomes aware of what God's commandments are, that arouses, Paul says, a desire in you to go do the very opposite thing. And it's not reverse psychology. It's literally a force within you. He says in Romans 7:10, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, notice he personifies it, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It's the nature you inherit from Adam. It's literally a force, a supernatural force you are born with. And this force sets you on a one way course opposite of whatever God says. Only by the supernatural work of the spirit are you put in a position to obey. So it was the nature of the problem that sin living in us desires to rebel against God at all times. So as I become aware of the demands of God in his word, the flesh by its nature seeks to act contrary to those laws. When we are born again by the spirit, we're released, Paul says, from the law and empowered to act according to God's desires. The spirit brings us the power to conform to Jesus's commands if we seek to follow the spirit instead of the flesh. In fact, this ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians is the fundamental defining characteristic of what it means to be Christian. As I've asked in here at times past and in my other studies, I say, what is the biblical definition of being a Christian? And that answer is what Paul gives in Romans 8, 8, 14 through 16. He says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out. Abba, Father, you notice that he says, how is it you're able to cry out, Father, by the Holy Spirit? Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is what Jesus means in verse 17. 
when he says the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. They don't see him. They don't know him. From the perspective of an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit does not exist. They mock it. The Holy Ghost. It's a phrase that has no meaning behind it. Because without faith, that is forever their experience. They have no relationship to it. They can't appreciate it. Jesus says, we will know the Spirit, on the other hand, because he will abide in us. This is the clearest mention in the Gospels of the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's amplified in the epistles. But within the Gospels, here's your clearest statement. He says, when the Spirit comes, he will live in all believers. Which is why Paul says the indwelling of the Spirit is the defining characteristic of a Christian. No Spirit, no Christian. You have the Spirit, you are a Christian. There's no in-between. In the next section, next part of his advice to them or his counsel to them, in lieu of his coming absence, Jesus will then repeat most of the main points we just covered, though in every case with a new emphasis, some added element. Verse 18 through 24, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Look at the structure here and notice how it matches the structure we've studied up to this point. You start here with Jesus promising he's going to return again. And again, he issues that assurance. I'm going to come back to you. And then he adds, after a little while, you're not going to see me. The world's not going to see me, rather. The world's not going to see me. But notice he doesn't say that the apostles won't see him, only that the world won't see him. In verse 19, he says, in fact, the apostles will see him. Obviously, we know... They saw him first when he was resurrected. More importantly, though, he means that the church will see him in the way the spirit will live on in his absence in them. He has revealed himself by his spirit. In other words, this statement repeats the earlier answer he gave to Philip concerning how Philip said, I want to know the father to show us the father. And he responded by saying, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. If you know me, you've known the father. Well, now he's saying, if you see the spirit, then you've known me. He's lining up all three parts of the Godhead as co-equivalent. And if you've got one, you've got the others by definition. In verse 21, Jesus repeats that need, though, now to obey. And this gets us back to this conversation of what he says or what he means when he says that to demonstrate love for him is to obey. Notice what he does differently this time, though. This time he puts the relationship in the reverse order of what he said at the earlier part of the chapter. He says now those who keep his commandments love him. Earlier he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But this change is important. This is a statement about obedience, not a statement about faith, not a statement about salvation. When we do what he says, we demonstrate love toward him. When we demonstrate love in this way, well, then we will see the love of the father and the son evidenced by the way they will disclose themselves to us. What he's presenting here is a very important biblical principle of reciprocation. The degree of our intimacy with and understanding of the Father and the Son, depends on our degree of obedience. Charles Spurgeon said, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And Wiersbe said this, 
This truth is illustrated in the experiences of Abraham and Lot, recorded in Genesis 18 and 19. When Jesus and the two angels visited Abraham's tent, well, they felt right at home. They even enjoyed a meal. And Jesus had a private talk with Abraham, disclosing himself. But our Lord did not go to Sodom to visit Lot because he did not feel at home there. Instead, he sent two angels alone. When you obey, the Lord delights to reveal himself to you in greater and greater ways. He will grant you greater understanding of himself and of his plan. He will give you greater insight to recognize his counsel in your life. He will give you greater appreciation for the direction that he offers. You'll hear him better. You'll follow him better. You'll have greater opportunity to see God working through you and around you. On the other hand, if you live in disobedience to his word, will the spirit for your own good switches over from disclosing to disciplining. Like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there for whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So until we've learned the lessons of disobedience and been trained by God's discipline, we're not in a position to receive greater things. I want you to imagine if you had a child in your home in rebellion to your authority. I'm sure that's really hard to imagine. Do you disclose greater opportunities for fellowship and for service to that individual under those circumstances? I mean, would you award them a greater role in your family business, for example? Would you share more of your plans with them? Would you invite them more into greater and greater opportunities in some context? Probably not. More than likely, your focus will remain on correcting that rebellious behavior and then watching for repentance and obedience. And then once that's there, you'll move forward having seen the fruit of that discipline. Well, why, if we do that with our kids, should we not expect the father who's in heaven to do just as much, if not more? If we know it's good, doesn't he? So if we are to see this disclosure, we obey his commandments. If we refuse his commandments, well, then he switches into a mode of discipline. Once we've returned to obedience, that is to loving Christ, for they are synonymous, as you can see then we should expect to see the fruit of righteousness. And that fruit includes the father and son disclosing themselves to us in greater ways. Isn't that enough incentive to obey, by the way? Just to have the opportunity for that disclosure. Now, at this point, it's another disciple's turn to ask a dumb question. The other is, is the other Judas here. He asks, what's causing Jesus to stop disclosing himself to the world? Now, in fairness, that's not actually a bad question. Because Jesus has been publicly declaring the gospel and publicly demonstrating his works for quite some time, right? And it's been an ongoing part of his ministry. And so now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he says, I'm done with this. You won't see me for a while. That's not an unreasonable question for Judas to say, can you explain the change? But on the other hand, it's a dumb question because it just reveals their ignorance. Jesus has already told them exactly what is going to happen. Back in the Galilee earlier, Jesus had specifically said to them, he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and he's going to be crucified. He's already said that to them on more than one occasion. So they should at least understand something about what's going to happen. And maybe most importantly, his question misunderstands some of what Jesus is saying in the same way that Peter and Philip misunderstood Jesus earlier. 
Jesus was not saying that he wasn't going to disclose himself to anyone. What he was saying is he's not going to disclose himself to the unbelieving world. He isn't going to disclose himself to those who aren't his. But to the saints, he's going to disclose himself in a mighty way. That's the essence of the disconnect between Jesus and the disciples at this point in this meeting, in this room. The whole time, Jesus has been speaking about the difference between those who are in the body of Christ and what they will experience in his absence as compared to the unbelieving world and what they are going to experience. He's going to reveal himself to his children, but the rest of the world, he's just going to remain an enigma like he's been all along. He responds to Jesus. Look at his answer. Jesus responds to Judas, repeating that those who love him and keep his commandments will be loved and the spirit will make his home in them. Now, we know Jesus is still at work disclosing himself to men today because we see men living today according to his word. Conversely, when you see people failing to keep the word of God, then, you know, they are not Christ. Now, you have to be careful with this statement. Don't take it out of context and don't misapply it. He isn't saying That only those who live perfectly are Christian or qualified to be Christian. If this was truly what he meant, then who could be called Christian? Not even the apostles. Paul self-discloses his sin in Romans 7. And in Galatians 1, he took it upon himself to disclose Peter's sin. So that's just two examples, right? So if you come to a conclusion that goes in the face of the reality of history, by definition, your conclusion is wrong. So we know that Jesus does not mean that his standard for whom he will indwell are those who can live perfectly according to his commandments, for there be no Christians. So where does that leave us in terms of the interpretation? Well, we must move from that kind of hyper-literal translation to something more general. In this case, the general direction of a person's life. If the general direction of a person's life is in a direction of obedience, do they seek to live in conformance to the word of God? Do they see the word of God as an authority in their life? Do they experience conviction when they fail to live according to the word of God and its precepts? Then that person belongs to Christ. And to the extent they obey, they are demonstrating love for him. On the other hand, if someone does not share these views of Scripture and of Christ, well, then they are not of Christ. Therefore, they are not loved by the Father. And this is not something that Christ himself made up. He said very clearly, this is from the Father himself. The Father will only love those who love the Son whom he sent. And we're speaking here now in the general sense of Christian versus not a Christian. We're not talking about here in degrees of obedience. You can be a Christian without bearing fruit in the sense of your obedience. There are plenty of disobedient Christians, which is why I said earlier, the interaction with the Father will switch to discipline. But in a general sense, there's the expectation in Scripture that as the Spirit indwells, there's a changed life that results. We have to be careful about assuming, though, that because of that promise, that includes somehow this expectation that we can discern that externally. The promise can exist even if we can't discern it. Those two things are independent of one another. It does not require that we discern it for it to be true. It requires that the Father discern it for it to be true. And in the case of a believer who is so determined to disobey the Father, it can become near impossible for another human being to discern that they are in fact a Christian because they've moved so far in the other direction so as to, uh, to mimic the life of an unbeliever. It's a process so fraught with error that it serves no useful purpose for us to be making critical comment about somebody else's state of heart in that respect. You will know Christians by their fruit, but that is not to say you will know unbelievers by the absence of such. If I see fruit in your life, I know you're a Christian. If I see absence of fruit in your life, I know nothing. 
You will show me that you are a Christian when I see fruit, but you can withhold your fruit and then I won't know what the truth is. You might be a Christian without showing me fruit or you might be an unbeliever. What Jesus is saying is to these disciples, do you receive my commandments or not? Not whether you go to church or not, not whether you give a lot of money to the church or not. Well, I want to see how you respond to the word of God. That is the criteria. You'll find a lot of people who profess a lot of interest in religion or even in Christianity fail at this test. They care nothing for the Bible or what's in it. And I don't just mean in studying it. I mean in following it, in caring what it says. Therefore, the defining characteristic that separates all mankind is how one responds to Jesus. Those who know and love and obey Christ are those who have the indwelling of the spirit and will receive a full disclosure. Those without the spirit cannot know and therefore cannot obey. Jesus's point is there's no third category. Finally, Jesus enters into the last part of preparing the disciples for his departure, and he does so by repeating the essential ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verses 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, Jesus is using the word abiding. You'll see more of this word next chapter. He's been leading up to this the whole way. The word again means to remain or to stay. Jesus says, I've spoken these things while abiding with you, meaning while I have been staying with you for these three years. Now he's about to depart, but he will continue to remain or abide with them by virtue of his spirit, the helper. So the spirit indwelling each of us today is the fulfillment of Christ's promise to remain with us forever. I want you to notice what he said a few verses back. Verse 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Not as long as you're obeying. Not as long as you don't repudiate me, but forever. So in Jesus's absence, the spirit dwelling in each of us is the fulfillment of his promise to remain with us, not just collectively, but individually forever. He does so as Jesus's presence in our life while we await his return for us. And then he emphasizes the role of the spirit as teacher. Now, for the apostles, the teacher, the spirit is going to bring back to mind all that he spoke to them and bring it back to them accurately, of course. For us today, as I mentioned already, the teacher is the one who brings us the knowledge of what the scripture means and then directs us into living according to it. Verse 27, he says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you, not as the world does, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the father for the father is greater than I. Now, I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. Thinking about these men for a minute, they've devoted three plus years of their life to following Jesus. And now he's talking about leaving them behind and going some strange place where they can't follow and sending a helper to teach them. It's also mysterious and a bit disconcerting, right? And so at verse 27, I think that's why he ends this section with these words. He says, I leave you with peace. And more specifically, he says, I'm going to leave you with his peace, my peace. No, not what passes for peace in the world, but the kind I have. That word, as you might know, if it were in Hebrew, would be shalom. And that word shalom is a customary greeting for both arrival and farewell in Jewish customs. You would say it when you show up. You would say it when you leave. Jesus here is using it as a farewell. He's also promising them a type of peace that will be a part of their inheritance. His peace is the peace of having the spirit 
ever-present and ready to assist us. When Scripture says the peace that passes all understanding, it's a description of the Spirit. Philippians 4.7, he says, The peace of God, my peace, Jesus would say, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is this peace that's guarding us? It's the Holy Spirit indwelling us. First and foremost, the Spirit assures us of eternal heavenly destinies. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, he says, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So in Paul's example, the Spirit is our guarantee that the Lord will not go back on his promise. You notice he says we've been sealed that he is given to us as a pledge. Think of it as a down payment, as an assurance of our inheritance, of our eternal glory and what we receive in the kingdom. So you and I may go through all kinds of ups and downs in our life, and knowing that the Spirit is in us is our source of peace, knowing our eternal future is secure. Secondly, he brings this peace through understanding Scripture. As you come to know more of what God's purposes are in Scripture, his plan for eternity and the like, you gain an ability to look beyond your present circumstances. By gaining eyes for eternity, you find peace in times and in circumstances when the world completely lacks that opportunity, cannot possibly find peace. That, friends, is a core reason why disciplined, lifelong Bible study is crucial to enjoying the fullness of a life in Christ while you await your glorification. The knowledge that it provides is the peace that the Spirit offers us so that we can see past the world and into the future and live there even as we wait for it. Finally, the Spirit speaks to us, guiding us and leading us out of trouble. This is one I think a lot of Christians don't emphasize enough. A lot of us get the first one, that we're sealed for eternity. We have the peace of knowledge of where we're going to be when we die. And I think many understand the second, that by our knowledge of Scripture, we gain the peace of an eternal perspective. But what about the third? The Spirit is our guide, our conviction, our teacher. He leads us out of trouble and out of things that bring us pain and suffering because of sin. A believer who lives in the counsel of the Spirit is going to avoid... Many of the troubling moments of life that vex unbelievers or disobedient Christians because they don't listen to the spirit. Obviously, Christians are still potentially going to suffer persecution and other calamity. But when God brings those trials, he'll bring it with an accompanying peace, knowing that it has an eternal purpose. But when you bring your own trials upon you because you live in disobedience to God, well, you're not going to feel that peace. The whole point is not to feel comfortable in those circumstances, just as the law was given to Israel in part so that they had a course to follow in the world to avoid the treachery and violence of a sinful world, so does the law written on our heart preserve us from that same harm. But only if you consult it. Only if you follow it. So a lot of our brothers and sisters who are living in dire circumstances of their own making are seeing the fruit of not listening and following the Spirit in their lives. And there's goodness in that, too. It's a form of discipline even in itself. So then, let's wrap it up. Jesus wraps up the conversation with comments that we know were really looking forward to the day they would write Scripture. And it was intended that it would jog their memories in a future day. He says, if you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going away to the Father and you wouldn't be surprised or you wouldn't be saddened. Love's not a synonym for whether you have faith in me or whether you believe me or whether you're saved. Otherwise, you'd have to conclude in verse 28, if you were saved, you would have rejoiced. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like you would say to your spouse, do you love me or not? Everything's on the line in that answer. In the way we pose the question, right? Do you love me? If the answer came back no, it would be like end of the marriage, right? 
No, if you use it the way Jesus used it, you might say, when you pick up your underwear, then I can love you. Because you keep my commands, right? The idea for it is that love is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a feeling. It's, it's an action. So it can come and go. It can come and go depending on how you're responding to the one you say you love. And so we don't see the word used that way. This is a love in a different sense. We tend to make things so black and white, we get into theological conundrums. Like, if I don't keep all his commandments, I can't be one of his disciples. Or if I disobey him, then I'm not his disciple. If I don't show any fruit, I'm not. No, wait a minute. These are degrees of what it means to love, as opposed to the all or none love that we tend to associate with save. By that comment alone, we would imagine the disciples were showing some of that sadness, some of that concern. Because, why? Because they had been looking forward to an earthly kingdom right from the start of this ministry. But they had understood that that Jesus' departure was going to ruin that plan. Now, if they had understood, on the other hand, that he was leaving specifically to go into the heavenly throne room, into the tabernacle with his own blood spilled and to distribute that blood onto on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in heaven to atone for the sin of us, we would have said, faster you get there, the better. Right. We would have been rejoicing. That's his point. They would have been rejoicing at what he was leaving to go do. They wanted the fruit of righteousness that is the kingdom, without recognizing the need for the atonement, for the sin to be paid for. That's the classic problem among religious people, by the way. We love to hear stories about heaven and the rewards that will follow. We easily overlook the price that has to be paid for it, though, and the sacrifice needed to reconcile us to God. As Christians, we should understand both sides, I would hope. But unless you're taught by Christ, you're naturally only going to think about the first one, the good stuff associated with God. In the end of the chapter, he points out that they've heard all these things, and that they're going to be fulfilled. And then notice he says, once they're fulfilled, then you'll believe. He specifically says that they're not believing now, which means they're not understanding now. It'll only be after these words are united with the prophetic fulfillment in their minds that they can look back and realize with hindsight what was being said. So for now, the words are just being given as seeds that he's planning for later because the hours are passing. And he ends by saying, interestingly, the ruler of the world is coming. He means Satan, of course who is the ruler of the unbelieving world. That's what he means by the word world here. He means the fallen world of unbelievers. He's coming in the sense that he's coming in the person of Judas Iscariot, who is, even as they speak, leading a Roman cohort to arrest Jesus. After he says that, though, he says, the enemy has nothing in me. That's a Hebrew idiom translated into Greek and then into English. It literally means he has no hold on me. But what that euphemistically means is he has no legal claim against me. He has no legal claim. So even though he's going to die at Satan's hand, it's not an indication that Satan won some kind of victory over Jesus. Rather, as Jesus says, he'll come and he'll take me away so that the world will know I love the Father. In other words, Jesus could have felled Satan with one word out of his mouth, but he won't do that because he loves the Father. And as he just told us, if you love someone, what do you do? You obey their commandments. So that's the essence of the reason we have the passion of Christ. He is willingly, obediently going to the cross and Satan is merely his escort. And with that, he says, let's leave the room. We've got to talk elsewhere. And that's where we go next week. Chapter 15. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, I ask for three things tonight, Father. I ask for the spirit to counsel, guide, teach, encourage, correct and discipline us as you see fit to keep us, Father, in your will. Father, I ask secondly that we would always seek your counsel through your word, through prayer, through the good advice of godly friends. That we would not seek to work outside your will, but we would always seek to know it so that we may thirdly, Father, always obey you. 
For we do love you, but we love you in the way that men love one another, Father, as an emotion that we can abuse and ignore when it suits our purposes. Let us love you, though, in the biblical sense, Father, as one who keeps your commandments so that you will perceive the love that we say we have and so that you will disclose yourself to us so that we may know you more fully even in these days that we await your return. We pray these three things in your precious name. Amen.